This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program as we start a brand new week together. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, based on the questions that have been sent, questions about all kinds of things. Um, all you have to do is call us and we'll do the best we can. 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, it's been a, an eventful week, uh, weekend even. And um, hope you had a great day in church yesterday. We did, and um, just always so nice to have the family together on a Sunday. Um, tonight, here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to be having our men's and women's Bible studies. Uh, the ladies, Jocelyn Makasadia, will be teaching for you. Uh, you can watch on live stream at calvarysa.com, or we've got room. You can come and join us tonight at 7 o'clock. Um, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men And then, of course, we have our high school and junior high school Bible studies going at the same time so you can make it a family affair. Well, let me get right to it because we got lots of questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls, and we always prefer those. The first one comes from Nacho from our email inbox, and he says, Who are Abraham's concubines in Genesis 25, 6? Sarah is dead, and Hagar is gone. So besides Keturah, are there other wives, and if so, how many? Um, not sure. I think I think what we've got here is just we don't have any record of Abraham having any concubines. We know that Hagar, of course, uh, was a concubine, gave birth to Ishmael. And Keturah, at the end of his life, uh, presented him with six sons. So I think that was just a um, a, a reference. He had, he had two concubines, um, in the past, both of them, or the first one, rather, a mistake for sure. But what, what I think the Bible is doing here by noting them out and separating the concubines instead of saying it's his wife, uh, I think what, what the, the Holy Spirit is doing is pointing out that Sarah and Keturah are not on the same level. Sarah is the wife of Abraham. Keturah became his wife um, at the end of his life after Sarah's death, but believe me, after the whole situation with Hagar, um, Abraham would not have been one to uh, amass um, concubines at all. So I just think the, the, the idea there is to, to set aside um, Sarah as, as being the wife of Abraham. And then the second wife, Keturah, um, um, was on the level as the... Um, as Hagar was, it was just uh, 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 not wrong. It wasn't wrong for, for Abraham to remarry. Uh, but making the distinction between Sarah and Keturah, I think, was the point of the passage. So, you know, there's things we're not given much detail, and that's one of those times. But I'm, I can safely, confidently say that uh, Abraham did not have other concubines. 
what was normal in the world. Remember, Abraham wasn't normal. He was God's friend. Thank you for the question, Nacho. Here's a question from Jeremiah. And um, I was kind of hoping we wouldn't get too much of this today, but here we go. Um, Pastor, on today, a vaccine for COVID was announced by Pfizer. Don't you think that if it were made public before the election, Trump would have been reelected? Um, I, I don't know, Jeremiah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful that there appears to be a successful vaccine. Um, I'm all for getting this whole thing behind us and, and moving on with life. Um, but um, um, I, I don't know that it would have had any um, effect. I certainly don't know, nor do you, that there was any behind-the-scenes effort to keep it away from the public um, to help defeat uh, President Trump. Um, I think when we speculate about things like this, we're on really, really shaky ground uh, because there just aren't any facts. I think we can be grateful to God that there appears to be a, um, a vaccine and, and leave it at that. Uh, I think one of the things that we have to do as Christians, and I think this is important. Now, uh, I've, uh, you know, President Trump um, defeated himself. Now, again, I realize there's all kinds of controversy about the ballots, the counting, all those things. That'll get shaken out. Uh, I'm, I've been praying, Lord, if it's dishonest, if, if, if the fix has been in, then you shake it out. Um, but but I think what we have to do is accept responsibility, and, and I think President Trump needs to accept responsibility for his defeat. I think President Trump could have been uh, one of, if not the greatest president, president in my lifetime for sure, and maybe in the history of the United States. The things that he did and the things that he has going on, um, the, the business-like approach to government, which is so unusual, for the government we have. I think it's, it's, it's been wonderfully successful. I think a return to uh, what he would call American exceptionalism, um, um, I, I, I call that patriotism. I just think we need to be proud of the fact that we're Americans and that we live here. And I think Trump made a lot of people proud to be Americans again. I think especially, Jeremiah, um, his uh, fulfillment of promises to Israel, promises that nearly every other president is broken to restore and reestablish Jerusalem as the capital of Jerusalem, to put our embassy there. His unwavering support for Israel is um, to be applauded, um, to be admired, and I think he did wonderful, wonderful things. Now, here is the problem. He couldn't get out of his own way. I mean, all he had to do was be a kind person. All he had to do was sort of live up to the office rather than be a, a source of controversy. He could simply have been criticized for his platform decisions, his political decisions, but he made it difficult. That's why we hear all of this restoring the soul of a nation, those kind of nonsensical things. Um, but he brought it on himself. He brought it on himself. He made people dislike him, and there were more people evidently that disliked him than liked what he was doing. And I personally, Jeremiah, I'm a practical man. Personally, I think that was a tragedy. So let's just rejoice that there appears to be a vaccine uh, for COVID, and then let's leave the speculation to the conspiracy theory websites and those of us who are believers. Let's just sort of focus on um, what Jesus has called us to do. If you are interested, you can go to calvaryessay.com and listen to the message that I did. The Lord provided a perfect passage of Scripture in a verse-by-verse teaching yesterday. Um, to talk about um, the loss of focus among Christians and not only the loss of focus among Christians, but how to get it back. And so you can listen to the message that I did yesterday if you are so inclined at calvarysa.com.
Let's go to line one and talk to Phyllis from San Antonio. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Uh, Pastor Ron, I am in uh, Hebrews 7, and mm-hmm. of course, you know, Melchizedek, it's, it's kind of difficult for me to understand, but what I don't understand is verses 7, no, uh, chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. I, I didn't understand that. Okay. I can do it. Phyllis, no, you know, everybody's is confused by Melchizedek. Uh, there's very little written about him. And then all of a sudden we get him uh, before us in Hebrews chapter 7 uh, by, I believe, the author of he, to, to uh, the Hebrews is the Apostle Paul. And uh, what Paul's point is, is establishing that um, Abraham, the lesser person in this case, verse 7, was blessed by the greater, the greater, of course, being Melchizedek. Now, to understand Melchizedek, you've got to understand who he is. Um, Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, he appears out of nowhere. He's without beginning or end. He's without genealogy. Uh, he is um, uh, the prince of Salem, the prince of peace. Um, he is a priest and a king. Um, only Jesus could do that. And so um, because he accepts worship from Abraham, we know that he is uh, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of God. So in the passages that you're talking about, um, Abraham has just returned from this glorious victory over the five kings. Um, he refuses to take any of their plunder. Um, he, he didn't want it known that he would be blessed by anybody. And yet, here comes this man, this strange man, Melchizedek. And um, Abraham worships him and gives him a tenth of the spoils, gives God the first fruits. And so that's what verses uh, 8 and 9 are declaring. Um, in Hebrews 7, Paul is using Melchizedek to describe um, that this, this man did not trace a descent from Levi. Levi, of course, that was the priestly tribe. And so he goes on to say that he is being blessed by Abraham. And when I say blessed, he's worship. He's, the act of giving is an act of worship. And as the greater, um, um, the one who is being blessed, um, um, Abraham is just honoring who he is. So we have to remember that uh, Melchizedek is not just a stranger who pops in. Uh, he's Jesus meeting Abraham at a pivotal point in his life. And at this point, Abraham gives him the first fruit of his victory and in so doing is worshiping God. Now, we have pre-incarnate appearances, Phyllis, of Jesus uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, there's a great book if you're interested. I find it fascinating personally. Uh, it's called Christ Before the Manger, and it's by a man named Ron Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S. And um, uh, this is just one of the pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord. And it sort of fills in the blanks. Why, was, why would Abraham give him the, 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 the tithe or a tenth? Um, and it was because he was worshiping the Lord. One of the thought about this, imagine what it was like for Abraham in a world where he truly was a stranger. And, and Abraham didn't fit in. He, he, you know, he lived there. He was honored by the people there. But he knew this wasn't his home. Hebrews says that he was looking for a city whose foundation was God, whose builder and maker was God. And so he's all alone, even, even when he's being blessed and even in victory. Abraham's alone. And suddenly there's this man who shows up and worships the same God. Again, the Prince of Salem, that's his name. The King of Salem, that's, that's a picture of Jesus. So I hope that helps Phyllis, but uh, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord. That's the reason that he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed 
Abraham who had the promises from God? Good question. Thank you very, very much. We'd love your calls, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Henry. He says, Pastor Ron, if we don't speak in tongues, does it mean we're not really saved? Henry, of course it does not mean that you're not really saved. Tongues are a gift. It's a wonderful gift given by God. Um, As spiritual gifts go, Henry, it is the least of the gifts because it's vertical. You know, it doesn't doesn't reach out horizontally. You know, and all of the other gifts of the Spirit um, were ministering to other people. I call those the horizontal gifts. It's the power of God coming down from heaven, coming upon us and through us, and then the result is people are being blessed. But tongues is different because tongues is just for prayer, for worship. When you don't know what to pray, God will give you this wonderful gift of, of a prayer language, and you know it's just between you and God. Another thing that you know, Henry, is that uh, it is a, a gift. Since it's a, from, a gift from God, um, we know that whatever we're praying, we're praying in the will of God, even if we don't understand it. So tongues is a great gift. Now, what you're referring to here is there are um, groups of Christians, and I believe they are Christians, uh, though they are so horribly wrong and have caused a lot of pain. Um, there's a group of, of believers who believe that if you don't speak in tongues, um, they base that on Acts chapter 2, where everybody spoke in tongues, um, but, but everybody didn't speak in tongues. The believers did, and it was a sign gift for the unbelievers in the crowd, and obviously it worked. Um, but they believe that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, Jesus said you're none of His. So they'll leap to the, the wrong conclusion that, that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not saved. Now, the reason this is so important is because a lot of Christians have been humiliated in thinking they're not saved or into faking the gift of tongues because they know that there's a lot of pressure. If you don't speak in tongues, you're really not saved. And Henry, it's just not true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, where we have the description of the gifts of the Spirit and their proper use, Paul summarizes chapter 12 uh, by, by asking the question, uh, do all speak in tongues? And then he uses that same rhetorical question for other gifts. And the answer, of course, is no. Not everybody speaks in tongues. So some people don't exercise the gift. Now let me, I hope this isn't confusing, Henry, having said that. I believe personally that God will give the gift of tongues to anybody who asks and who will, by faith, operate that gift. I believe with all my heart, Paul said, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. This is a wonderful gift. And since it's a gift that edifies us, it's that vertical gift I spoke about. I believe with all of my heart that God would give to everybody. The reality is, that tongues don't make sense to a lot of people. Some people just can't cross that line from logic into faith, and they don't utilize it, but it does not mean they're saved or not saved. It's a great gift. I'm like Paul. I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. But if you don't, Henry, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It doesn't mean that you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. Obedience is the trigger for the Holy Spirit's power. And that's all you need to do. One last thing, having said all of that, Henry, seek the gift of tongues. God will give it to you. He'll give it to you. And when you utilize it, I'm promising you that it will enhance your relationship with Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't want that? So just because it's weird, and the minute you start yabba-dabba-doing, um, um, you know, the, the devil will be right there say, oh, you're just making that up, that kind of thing. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just, just step out in faith and begin speaking in an unknown language. Now, is it a real language? I don't think so. Mine is not. I, it sounds like it sometimes. But I just think this is like, my little secret between me and Jesus, I think that's what the gift of tongues is primarily for. There is a use in a corporate setting, but it has to be done orderly, under control, 
Everybody can't speak in tongues at the same time. That's absolute nonsense. Only two or three at the most, and then only with an interpretation. But the private gift of tongues, I think, is really important. One more thing on this, Henry, and this just, for me, is the greatest use of tongues. We humans have a tendency just to repeat ourselves in our prayers. We fall into, I call them ticks, but we fall in little habits and speech patterns. And I, I think sometimes we, we just run out of things to say. And for me, that's the best time of all. The best time of all to use your prayer language. And you do it trusting that God is going to answer your prayers. For me, I'll say, Lord, I don't, I don't have the gift of interpretation, by the way. But it's in times like that, Henry, when I just think, Lord, I don't even know what I prayed for. But I have the satisfaction of knowing that the prayer was generated by the Holy Spirit. Thus, it is a prayer in spirit. And it means that you're going to answer that prayer wherever and whatever. And I think it's really important that we take God at his word. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. If God wants to give you a gift, Henry, utilize it. All of you be careful of those who would say things like, well, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. They're sort of using the gifts or leveraging themselves. I'm more spiritual than you because you don't and I do. And, and, and that's proof that they're not praying in the Spirit at all. Michael, Michael, I'm going to wait to the side of the break to take this question because it's a little bit long for the time that we have left this half. Donald says, can we speak things into existence if we have enough faith? Donald, that's another um, um, common false teaching of the prosperity movement. Just believe, 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 and, and you can speak things into existence. You can't. Your words have no power. None whatsoever. Your words can't sneer you, nor can they um, do anything positive for you. So no, we can't speak things into existence. What we can do is pray, speaking out loud for the will of God to be done in our life. That's what it takes faith to do. It doesn't take faith to say, okay, God, I'm naming it and claiming it. Make me a billionaire tomorrow. Or heal my disease, Lord. I'm, I'm claiming it by faith. You can't speak things into existence. That is prosperity gospel nonsense. And you really, really need to stay away. That is a bad teaching. Um, if that's the kind of church you're going to, you're getting ripped off. Um, no, our words have no power whatsoever. The power comes from the Spirit of God within us. Why would we think that we have any control over these things when we are nothing but servants of God? And when I say nothing but, I mean it is an honored position, but but we're servants, and the servant follows Jesus' example and says, nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. You know, Donald, I've seen as a pastor for 25 years, I've seen a lot of people whose faith has been shipwrecked because the prosperity teaching um, just doesn't work. I believed it. I named it and claimed it. When I first got saved, I wanted to be rich. I, 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 I once was wealthy, and then I lost it all in sin, and, and uh, I had all kinds of money problems. And so I was going to churches like this. And I remember a guy coming to me in my at my work and saying, you know, we, we need to pray together and, and claim 10 cars. We're going to sell 10 cars today. And um, I said, okay, let's pray. And we named it and we claimed it and Donald I believed it. But we didn't sell any cars that day. It happened to be during the first Gulf War. And there weren't 10 customers, let alone 10 cars sold. And I remember going to him and saying, well, what happened? And he goes, well, I guess we just didn't believe it enough. And I knew right then it was a scam. And I told him, I said, I don't know about you, but I believe it with all of my heart. 
But you see, that's the emptiness of that kind of teaching. So, Donald, you can't speak things into existence. You know, God has made us such great and wonderful promises in his word. All we have to do, all we have to do is believe the real promises of God that we've already received because those are promises of God that we can't miss out on. And that has nothing to do with our faith. It has everything to do with God's faithfulness. So Donald, get out of that church. Stop reading those materials. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our Monday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. It's Monday. We've got 30 minutes left. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's Michael's question. I didn't have enough time to deal with it right at the end of the, of the first half. He says, he wants to know, what was your biggest struggle as a new believer? Whew, you know, Michael, my life, I look back on my life, and while I remember all the ugly stuff about my life before Jesus, it really is as though that's somebody else. Now, that makes sense, because the old Ron died, and there was a new Ron that, that, that was born again. Um, but... Um, my my life was such a mess when I got saved. I was nearly 40 years old when I got saved and actually believed that um, um, I'd wasted my life and, you know, I was going to go to heaven. I was grateful, but I didn't really believe God could ever use me. And so I think my biggest struggle, I might mention a couple of things here, but I think my biggest struggle was patience. I felt like I had wasted so much time. Believe me, Michael, I was in a hurry. Uh, I've shared before in the program, I was six months old in the Lord when I, I found out I was called to be a pastor. And I just felt like, okay, well, I need to start pastoring. And uh, I struggled. Now, my my flesh is such that I, I you know, I'm a go-getter. I want, I want to do things. And waiting for Jesus to make me into a man he could use was really difficult for me. It was really difficult for me. So I think patience was my biggest struggle. I think um, right next to that on the scale of difficulty for me was I I also am a a very logical person. Um, Things just need to make sense to me. And um, one of the things I experienced as a Christian is that nothing made sense. And I would really struggle with that. I would have expectations. Okay, I'm going to do this. God said this. I'm going to do this. So this is what's going to happen. And and God never let any of that stuff happen the way I thought it would. And so stuff just didn't make sense. And when God started asking me to take steps of faith, um. All I could think about was, okay, Lord, I trust you. You know, I trust you with everything, but but what if this doesn't work? And I'm going to look like a fool. So uh, I, I think um, that was a struggle. And probably both of those first two things that I said were sort of undergirded by uh, my pride. You know, as a 40-year-old man um, entering a whole new life, um, it was hard for me to admit that I was wrong about things. And it wasn't until I could say, Lord, in my flesh is no good thing. You know, we humans, we have a hard time with that. 
But it wasn't until I could say that. And in order to do that, God had to humble me. And when I got to that place where I knew that anything good was completely 100% dependent upon God, um, it was a big letdown for me because I thought, well, God, you, you must need me for something. And I finally got to that place where I realized, you know, he doesn't need me for anything, but he delights to put me in. You know, put me in, coach, I'm ready to play. God delights to put me in. And so kind of wrestling with all of those things was um, were my biggest issues. You know, Michael, when um, I look back on how fast God's moved in my life, uh, Paul and I moved to San Antonio and started this church when I was only four years old in the Lord. I'm just four years old in the Lord and I'm already pastoring a church now. It took some time to develop. God was doing uh, a lot of work in me and Impala. But we look back now and we think, man, he, he, you you really move fast. But I got to tell you, Michael, those four years seem like 400 years to us. And that's just the way it was. So I think those are the things that I struggled with. I didn't really struggle with 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 the sins of the flesh, those kind of things. Um, um, my 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 transformation was so complete. Um, I was a completely different human when I got up off that public street in 1991. Um, so so my struggles were just pride and and uh, come on, geez, I'm in a hurry. Why are you taking so long? I'm ready. Um, a little, little too much self-sufficiency. And I think self-sufficiency has destroyed a whole bunch of ministries, Michael, because it destroys first the ministers. So thank you for the question. You know, speaking of that, yesterday we had a, a woman in church. haven't seen her now for several years, many years. And um, she was uh, in our very first church service um, May 31st, 1995, she was there, and she was in our church until she moved out of state uh, for, for many years, um, and then, then moved and, and seen her. Well, her and her husband had moved back to Texas, and I, I saw her yesterday in church, and I thought, oh, Lord, you're so good. You're just so good. Time goes quickly. Wendy has a question. She said, Pastor Ron, I'm a believer, should I attend a same-sex wedding of a relative? Uh, Wendy, my input would be no. Um, a wedding is a celebration. And I think by attending uh, a celebration, we are um, validating a wedding that God says should never exist. So I, I don't think so. Now, there are a lot of Christians who disagree with me. And I'm willing to give them latitude, but here's what I always ask them. If you can honestly go before God and say you're not going because of the pressure from family members to compromise, if you can honestly say that, people will tell me, well, well, but I'm going, so I want to keep the door open. Maybe I'll have an opportunity to witness to them. Well, after they've married somebody, it's too late to witness. You can still witness to them about Jesus, but it's not like you're going to slowly win somebody over. So I believe, Wendy, with all of my heart, that attending a same-sex wedding, a celebration of two becoming one, I think that is um, a compromise of the highest order. And I think um, a lot of times the pressure that we have to go to those things, especially from family members, I think that's a tool of the enemy to get us to compromise because the minute we do that, they're going to expect that we now approve of that relationship. And for the Christian, this is, well, they know who I am and they know where I stand, so um, that's not the case. Well, why didn't you tell them when they invited you? You know who I am. You know I'm a believer, so you know I can't come. I love you, and I'm going to keep telling the truth about Jesus, but I can't come and celebrate a wedding that is an abomination in the eyes of God. So, Wendy, I wouldn't um, 
And yet I would also tell you this is one of those things, Romans 14.23 says, anything not of faith is sin. And it's one of those things I think that you've got to come to a place where you've got peace in the Lord. But personally, I can't imagine God ever telling a Christian, well, I want you to compromise and go to this way. So it's a matter of conscience between you and Jesus. Do as you are led to do. Just make sure that the reason isn't because you're surrendering to pressure. Bernard says, Why do I feel guilty uh, every day if I don't read the Bible or pray? Um, Bernard, you feel guilty because the enemy is an excellent manipulator. Now, should you read the Bible? Should you pray daily? Of course you should. But life happens. We understand that. God understands that. But remember... The guilt, the condemnation is a tool of the enemy to try to get you to be discouraged. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you have a day where you don't get to read the Bible, or maybe you've gone through a day and, and you haven't really sat down and talked with Jesus or taken a walk with him or anything else, um, you know what? I, I think it, it's great to say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I ignored you all day yesterday. Please forgive me. And he will. He'll take your hand and say, well, let's do it today. But remember, that's not guilt. Repentance and guilt are two different things. So don't let guilt keep you in a place where the enemy can sort of pound you. Just say, okay, I know I need to read. Now let me ask you this, Bernard, and you'll have to write in and tell me if you are so inclined. Why don't you read the Bible or pray every day? I've always got a conversation going on with Jesus. Um, Paul says we're to pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean we're on our knees in a dark room uh, all day, every day. But it means that, that we're, we're talking to Jesus, who is our friend, who is our Savior, who lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So why wouldn't we talk to him? If you got to go to work, wouldn't your day at work be much better if you were talking to Jesus while you were there? Not just talking about Jesus, that works too, but talking to him. So those are the things that you've got to Got to answer. Um, if you're not reading or praying because you're spiritually lazy, well, then maybe what you're defining as guilt is just conviction of the Holy Spirit. And God is telling you, uh, Bernard, I love you. I love you, and I want to spend time with you, and I got something I want to share in my heart with you, but you won't let me. That's conviction. And the answer for conviction is confession and repentance. Repentance is turning around, doing the things that you know you're supposed to do. And doing them just because, not because you have to, but because you just want to be with Jesus. So uh, you've got to sort of define, make the, the, the decision between guilt and condemnation. Here's a guideline for you. Condemnation always draws you away from Jesus. Conviction always draws you to him. So given that rule, Bernard, you can decide whether it's guilt or conviction. If it's conviction, respond. Do not quench the Spirit of God. Just respond. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm going to change. If it's condemnation, you know it's the devil who's sort of pounding um, while he's trying to get you to be in a place where God can't use you because you're feeling so guilty about things. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Toll free, 877-630-KSLR. Reggie says, Best friend, I'm a Calvinist, and I struggle with why God would choose some people over others like he's playing favorites. Well, Reggie, I think your problem is that you're a Calvinist. 
you know, a Calvinist would would conclude, well, you know, God chooses some, which means he doesn't choose, choose others, and that's the, the nature of the struggle that you describe. But that's not at all what Jesus is doing. He chooses us, Romans 8, 29, um, uh, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. He chooses us on the basis of foreknowledge. So the reason God chose me in 1991 was because he knew way before 1991 that I was going to choose him. It's that simple. God chooses those he knows are going to choose him back. Everybody has the same opportunity, but he knows who's going to say yes and who's going to say no. And Reggie, your question is the real heart of the issue with Calvinism because the Calvinist God is a cruel, arbitrary God who says, I take you, and I take you. And you know, if a Calvinist is honest, when you ask him that question, well, why would God choose some and, and, and make others without a choice, even though he says to come unto him? Why would he make people without a choice? And their answer is usually, well, you know, who are you, lump of clay, to talk to the potter? But you see, we can talk to God. And Reggie, the only thing you have to tell Calvinists or people that believe this doctrine that is so, so harmful, I could do is say, do you want to be chosen? Just choose Jesus today. Say yes, and you know you're chosen. Well, I don't know if I'm chosen. Well, say yes, and you'll know. So it's not a difficult thing at all. There's really no tension at all in that. So Reggie, I hope that helps. Let's go to Jeff on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks, Jeff. No, no silliness today for me. I really missed you guys on Thursday, and then I couldn't listen on Friday, so I didn't know what happened. I get all sad when I can't be there for at least eight <laughs> days. You know? That's how I feel around Paula, too, Jeff. Yeah, I bet. Um, and I, a couple things. This just came to my mind because I heard it today. Great law about Chuck Smith today in in his broadcast. He mentioned that when he uh, felt that he was called to serve, he actually went to see Chuck Smith and sat in front of him and said, that, you know, he's thinking that that Chuck Smith is going to give him a job or something. You know, hey, you want to serve? That's great. Here, well, let's, let's blah, blah, blah. He said, no, he sent me to another pastor. And I think he said his name is Pastor <laughs> Romain. Yeah, said, turned out to turned out to be a, a, a former Marine drill sergeant. And what what was my service then? He said I cleaned a lot of bathrooms. <laughs> you know, his point was, you know, his point was, of course, you know, you start small. I mean, you you can't just go out there thinking you're going to lead a Bible study and do all that kind of stuff until you understand really what what serving is all about. You know, descending. <laughs> so I thought it was neat to hear him talk about that because I know he came from from Calvary Chapel. Yep. Um, so you can comment on that. But I, I wanted to ask you too, also based on a, one of your sermons I heard at six o'clock last week. Uh, you mentioned um, uh, backsliding, and you said I really abhor that that term, that word. And I thought mm-hmm. hmm, I haven't heard Pastor Ron talk about backsliding before. So I, I wondered if you would you know, chime in on that a little bit. And then, and that's all for now. I'm just so glad to hear your voice today. I don't know why Thank I you, prayed Jeff. for you guys over the weekend, but then, and that sound must've been really uh, uh, hair raising in a good way to, to see that lady come back who was at your first service ever. That's just <laughs> amazing. Yeah. God, God is really good to us that way. Jeff, thank you very, very much. And in case you didn't hear, we had an area-wide outage, uh, our our internet carrier uh, spectrum um, on Thursday. We were here ready for the show, and and, uh, we just, our system wasn't working. So that's why we had Paula back on Friday. Um, um, The the reason, Jeff, that I abhor the backsliding, the term, it's as though we Christians have invented a, a polite word for sin. I, I can't tell you how many times over the years that I've had somebody say to me, I'll say, so you're a believer? Well, yeah, but I'm backsliding right now. 
And they'll ask him, well, so how long is that going to last? I mean, you're going to keep backsliding? Well, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this, or God is dealing with me on this. And, and I don't give those people a break at all. God's not dealing with you. You've got to be dealt with. Because he's already told you you've got to stop this. And backsliding sounds so polite that it's almost like, well, you know, I know I shouldn't be doing it, but it's really not a bad thing. And unfortunately, that's just the way we view sin. And I've always loathed um, that expression. Um, when we can't admit that we are sinners, Jeff, um, then there's a lot of real heavy issues in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's the reason I don't like it. With regard to uh, to Greg and, and Pastor Chuck, um, uh, I had the privilege of knowing only for a brief time um, uh, Pastor Romaine um, had a reputation. He was direct, gruff. Um, now you knew he loved you, but um, if there was a pastor who had a problem in his marriage, for example, Chuck would always send him to Romaine for marriage counseling. And Romaine would say to the pastor, he would say, See her face? Your job is to make that face smile. Your job is to make her happy. Your job is to be a blessing to her, and you're failing miserably. Repent. And that's kind of how Romaine dealt with things. And so um, Romaine was the guy that nobody wanted to talk to, and I found him delightful in the, in the times that I got to meet him. Um, but but uh, Greg tells that story. There's a book called Harvest, if anybody is interested. It's a, a book called uh, harvest, which is is really the the beginning of the Jesus movement, and I think it focuses on seven or eight guys who were with Pastor Chuck at the beginning, and they all kind of took different paths to uh, to um, to the pastoral role, uh, and all of them became uh, pastors of mega churches. Uh, wonderful stories of God's faithfulness. Uh, Mike McIntosh, in particular, is a great story. But uh, Greg, you know, he started pastoring, uh, teaching Bible study in Riverside uh, at 19 years of age. Got saved in high school um, during the Jesus Movement days. And um, Pastor Chuck, knowing that if he sent him to Romaine, what was going to happen? Greg, how can I serve God? Let's do this Bible study. And he says, well, you go see Romaine and he'll give you a job. And the job was either janitorial, cleaning the, the bathrooms, picking up cigarette butts around. Pastor Chuck always set a great example of that. You couldn't walk with Pastor Chuck. He was always, now he was old, but he would pick papers up, he'd pick cigarette butts up, put them in his pocket, and walk to a trash can. And, and what Romaine was doing with Greg was saying that this is the heart you got to have before God can trust you with people. Greg is about my age, and uh, I think he's a couple of years younger. Um, but um, at the beginning, we all got to learn to serve. Jesus said, lose your life for him, and you'll find it. Uh, Romaine has a book called Second, and it's a book about being a servant. Um, two very quick little Romaine stories. Don't have anybody holding on the line. Um, when I was in Bible college, Romaine, we used to have on, on Wednesdays, we would have a guest speaker come up, and it would be a slot from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock. So usually they'd, they'd preach for an hour, and then we'd have a 10-minute break, and then they'd come back and preach for the rest of the uh, the second hour. Well, when Romaine, it's the first time I ever heard him teach, um, he got right to the hour, and he just kept on going. And um, I, I thought, wow, we're going to be here, and you know, I had to go to the bathroom and all those things. And... Uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Romaine, with that gruff voice, he said, Larry, Larry was the pastor who oversaw the Bible college. Larry, I'm done. And he just walked off. And that was a perfect description of who Romaine was. But he was a guy that um, understood what it was like. The other story that I was going to tell very quickly is that um, um, Romaine, because of his position with Chuck for a long time, um, was often asked by other Calvary Chapel pastors in Southern California if he would come and fill in for them. And you know, most times pastors who don't get to teach a lot, they're always looking for that opportunity. And every time you'd ask Romaine if he wanted to come and, and teach at your church, how about you come and teach on Sunday? He would say, nope, I already have a job. 
And I don't think my boss would be very pleased with me if I didn't do my job. There was just no ego at all. Great, great example. We don't have time for a phone call? Okay, here's, let me get to a question. Lisa says, I know some people have a special anointing. How can I know if the pastor I'm listening to is anointed? Uh, Lisa, uh, especially in faith and prosperity circles, um, this whole idea of anointing is so misused and abused um, um, and, and misunderstood. Uh, anointing is simply the power of God to do what God has called you to do. Everybody has that special anointing, but that anointing goes along with the gifts that they have. Uh, I exercise that that anointing when I teach the Word. Uh, God's given me that gift, and um, and that's what God has, has appointed me to do. Now, the way to know if the pastor you're listening to is one of those men called and gifted by God to teach is whether or not he is teaching consistently with the Word of God. Now, I don't mean just using Bible verses, but I mean, is his doctrine solid? Is he sound? Is he consistent? Um, There's a lot of people who are gifted communicators who aren't at all anointed to preach the Word of God because they're really not preaching the Word of God. So, um, Lisa, if you know the Word, you can't get led astray. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. We've got four more days in the week. I look forward to hearing from you uh, later in the week. This has been the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.